been an intense week. On Tuesday, Roy and I attended the funeral and memorial service for one of our colleagues, Pastor Roman Halupka. His death was very sudden, and so it was a shock to everyone, especially his family. He was the pastor of the Dandenong Polish Church, and the way he died was quite um, sad because he actually had conducted a funeral and was on the way to the car when he actually had a stroke, and the um, ambulance couldn't revive the people. The um, paramedics who came were not able to revive him. So on Tuesday, Roy and I went, and you know the church was packed out with many people who wanted to celebrate the life and ministry of this very faithful man of God. He was only seven years old, way too young. Also, as Ruth mentioned in the prayer. Wildfire in Maui, Hawaii have, have led, has led on Tuesday to extreme devastation. So this is what it looked, this particular town, uh, Will sent me this picture. This particular town of Lahaina, where Will and Eliza's friends, Tati and her family were, looked like this. And now every single home in that town is destroyed. And the Seventh-day Adventist church there is in ashes as well. And so we want to continue to pray for um, this fire. They haven't contained it um, and it's in Maui. Um, and so please continue to pray for what's happening there. This and many other things this week left me wondering, what makes a life worth living? What makes a life worth celebrating? And in a world more than 8 billion people does your one life really matter? I'm starting a new sermon series. So today is Why You Matter. Next week, we're going to be looking at why they matter, looking at who they are. We're going to be looking the following week at why God matters. Why does God matter in a world today? And then finally, uh, in September, we'll be looking at why we as a community matter. So let's start with that very first important question. Why do you matter? Why do I matter? And I want to propose that we matter because we were created by God who cares about us. In Psalm 139, verses 7 and onwards, the psalmist David says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me. But even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. David says, even if I'm in the darkest, ugliest, farthest places, going through who knows what, he says, God is still there. For you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The Bible says that you are not an accident. 
you are not a mistake, and you're not a speck in the universe here today and gone tomorrow. You aren't just good enough. The Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are extraordinary. But you might be thinking, I don't feel special. But even your existence is against all odds, right? The exact two cells had to meet and create the DNA sequence that encoded you and brought you into existence, which is a one in a 250 million chance. Paul Davis, who is an astrobiologist, talking about the chances of life being possible here on Earth, says, we don't know the mechanism whereby non-life turns into life. So we have no way of estimating the odds. It may be one in a trillion trillion. It's easy to imagine that. He's, I think he's kind of being tongue-in-cheek there. In which case, Earth life might, may be unique in the observable universe. We simply can't say. Scientists have various theories on how the Earth came to have the exact right environment for life, but no one knows for certain. An award-winning science journalist, John Horgan, says quite honestly, he says, as a science journalist, I know that scientists don't have a clue how our universe sprang into being billions of years ago or why it took this particular form out of countless other possibilities, including non-existence. Nor does anyone know how inanimate matter on our little planet coalesced into living creatures, let alone creatures like us, who possess this strange thing called consciousness. Science, you might say, has discovered that our existence is infinitely improbable, hence a miracle. And he goes on to say, it is one thing to know intellectually that life is a miracle. It's quite another to see it. Saints and poets aside, most of us rarely do. Our pinched perception stems from two deep-rooted cognitive tendencies, instrumentality and automization. Instrumentality is our compulsion to view life as a series of tasks that advance our selfish interests. Automization is our propensity to learn chores so thoroughly that we perform them with little or no conscious thought. We end up sleepwalking through life. Every now and then, if we're lucky, we stop seeing the world as something to be manipulated for our ends, and we simply see it undistorted by our desires and fears. In other words, he's saying, in our pursuits of fulfilling our family expectations, society expectations, our own personal desires, in our pursuit of doing this day in and day out, we rarely stop to wonder at the miracle of life itself. We're so consumed by comparisons and our social pressures and our own internal thoughts telling us that it's never enough, that we lose sight of our unique significance. But God reminds us, Isaiah 43 verse 1, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. We belong to God. God knows the name of every single person on this universe. He knows and sees what you have been through. Our journey towards realizing our worth begins with recognizing that our identity is rooted in him 
and not in the fleeting standards of this world. It's not our accomplishments or our accolades that define us, but merely the fact, and maybe especially the fact, that we are human beings created in God's image. And so you matter not because of anything you've done or not done, but simply because you have been created by God. Now, this is a tough concept to, to, to accept. It's easy for me to say, but it's hard for us to live with. I struggle with this too, right? Because we are all products of our culture. And so, you know, as you know, I turned 40 this year. And I don't know what it is about that number that is so scary, but it is. <laughs> and that, and I feel like, you know, um, this whole year I've been, I've been thinking back about my 20s and my 30s and how quickly it all went. And just thinking, man, what have I done with my life, right? Having my midlife crisis. And it's so easy as human beings to look at all the failures or to look, compare ourselves to others and to think, I'm just not good enough or I just haven't done enough. This is Henry Nguyen, who is, who was, I should say, um, a priest, a Dutch priest who used to teach at institutions I covered. And after a while, he went to work at the Larche Daybreak community in Canada, which is a community for those who have intellectual and developmental disabilities. So he went there as a, as a chaplain to, to live with them. And while he was there, meeting and living with and befriending and serving individuals in that community, Henry Nguyen came to a profound realization. And when I read this uh, statement in his book, it made, it made a huge impact on me and my understanding of my own worth. He met especially with, he was paired, I should say, with a man named Adam, Adam Arnett, who had profound developmental disabilities. He couldn't talk, he couldn't walk, right? Adam was someone who needed a lot of care. And as Henry interacted with Adam, he came to this realization. Adam was very simply, quietly, and uniquely there. He was a person who by his very life announced the marvelous mystery of our God. I am precious, beloved, whole, and born of God. Adam bore silent witness to this mystery, which has nothing to do with whether or not he could speak, walk, or express himself, whether or not he made money, had a job, was fashionable, famous, married, or single. It had to do with his being. He was and is a beloved child of God. It is the same news that Jesus came to announce. And it is the news that all those who are poor keep proclaiming in and through their very weakness. Life is a gift. Each one of us is unique, known by name and loved by the one who fashioned us. You see, if we are here by chance, if we are here because of that speck in the universe having the right conditions leading to what we are today then why is it that the human life is elevated above other life? Why do laws protect the life of a human being more than, say, the life of an ant? Why is every human being's life precious in the eyes of the law so that the murder of someone who has done great evil 
is still prosecuted? Why has Australia abolished the death penalty in the 1970s, I believe, and you know, all the states and ultimately um, the Commonwealth said, no, this is inhumane in support of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that every human being is, is, is equal and has human dignity. Why do we have such statements that are endorsed by countries and people groups around the world? It's because we understand that we have intrinsic value. That whether you are young or old, poor or rich, accomplished or not, whether you have all four limbs or whether you have disabilities, whether you are neurologically different, doesn't matter, right? There's something that states fundamentally every human being has intrinsic worth. Quoting once again Henry Nguyen, he says, life is a gift, repeat, uh, picking up from where we left off. Each one of us is unique, known by name, and loved by the one who fashioned us. Unfortunately, there is a very loud consistent and powerful message coming to us from our world that leads us to believe that we must prove our belovedness by how we look, by what we have, and by what we can accomplish. We become preoccupied with making it in this life, and we are very slow to grasp the liberating truth of our origins and our finality. We need to hear the message announced and see the message embodied over and over again. Only then do we find the courage to claim it, and to live from it. Why is it that we look at a baby that is completely helpless, that doesn't give us any money but takes away, that doesn't help but is just a ton of work, right? And cries and is not proportionate. And why do we look at this baby and feel love and affection towards it. And a more important question, why is it that as this baby grows and makes mistakes and becomes an adult, that our unconditional love for this person decreases? As a society, we have lived and taught that our worth is measured by achievements, appearance, and status. And so that little baby that started out completely helpless and yet was loved, as that baby grows up, realizes that people get disappointed in him or her. And slowly but surely, that impacts our hearts and our minds and our souls. And we have to relearn or unlearn what society tells us about value and worth. And we have to go back to what God tells us. That I am simply by being precious. That you simply by being are precious. And when we understand and accept this, we don't have to prove anything to anyone anymore. Then we can live free from the fear of failure. Then we can live the life that God has created us to live. So in the words of Billie Eilish, what were we made for? Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, 
in our likeness. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and of all the creatures that move along the ground. Now the word rule in English has a lot of connotations because of our view of power and history. But in the original Hebrew and in this context, when God asked humanity to rule over creation, it was about bringing out the best in creation. It wasn't about extorting or oppressing it for human greed. Instead, God wanted humanity to be the delegated ruler, to represent God, to rule as God rules, to be loving, to be creative, to, to extend personal care, to cultivate and power all creation, to shine and flourish in all its diversity and beauty and possibility. That means building each other up, encouraging and affirming people. It means caring for nature all the creatures and the environment, and it means participating in God's redemptive work of healing. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork. And other versions say, we are God's masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul, the writer of Ephesians, is very clear that we are not saved by our works. We're saved by grace, by God's work. But we have a purpose, and that purpose is to do good. We have unique talents and personalities and interests that contribute to the well-being of this world. Each of us is connected to at least one person in this world that we can do good to because of who we are, because of our individuality. And unfortunately, human beings have failed to fulfill God's role for us. And we do the opposite. We tear each other down. We create false and harmful standards of worthiness. We limit what good people can do by creating boundaries and rules and hurdles, and we destroy creation. But what if we were each of us created for good? Rick always felt that he was very different from others. Growing up in a small town north of London, he was often alone. He was bullied by other children who found him odd. He had no interest in team sports, and whenever a ball came towards him, he panicked. I can relate to Rick. Teachers said that he spent too much time daydreaming and criticized his lack of effort and said, we don't think he's going to amount to much. His parents thought he was lazy and couldn't get him to be interested in anything. He just spent his time fishing. And even that was the only hobby or interest he could, you know, muster up enough energy for. Then one day when Rick was 17 years old, his mom was, was in, you know, the living room watching TV and she said, hey Rick, come over here, I think you'll like this. And it was a documentary about two cave divers who were about to break a world record on how deep and how far they were going in a particular cave. And he watched this documentary completely fascinated. And he decided, when I go to university, which he wasn't sure what he was going to study yet, he was like, 
But one thing I know is I'm going to sign up for the cave diving club. So he went to university, and like I said, he wasn't really interested in anything. So he never graduated. He kind of studied this and that, but really all he did was cave diving. For the next 40 years, it became an obsession. And uh, after you know a while, he needed to work to sustain his obsession because you know he has to travel and he had to get equipment. So he finally gets a job as a firefighter. And, you know, the main reason he chose that job was because you worked four days, then you had four days off. And so it gave him time to go cave diving. He had a few relationships, but none of them lasted more than a few years. Never got married, never had children. In fact, he hated children. Then at the age of 57, he retired as a firefighter. He's wondering, what do I do with the rest of my life? He was beginning to question whether he wanted to continue cave diving because it was a lot of effort, a lot of money, and a lot of risk. It was a sport that had no practical purpose. It's, it's, there's no professional cave divers because there's no money in it whatsoever. And his firefighting mates used to tease him by saying, you're so good at something that is absolutely useless. Because when you go cave diving, you don't actually discover anything. You just go a little bit deeper into the hole, into the water, into the cave, right? No one is going to give you anything for having discovered another chamber. And several people died every year from cave diving. It was a very dangerous thing to do. In his uh, memoir, which I read this week with fascination, Rick wrote, I had devoted my life to reaching the pinnacle in this one activity that was absolutely pointless. It brought nothing to anybody. So he was thinking, do I want to keep doing this? He was thinking maybe of taking up like kayaking or some other, you know, water sport that actually, you know, there was a bit more in, more people in it, more, more things in it. Then on June 23, 2018, 12 boys and their football coach went missing inside a cave system in northern Thailand. Their bikes were discovered outside the mouth of the cave. Their parents discovered that they didn't come home, and it was pouring rain. And when they went, somebody said, oh, I heard they went to the cave. And when they got there, there the bikes were at the mouth, and the rains had completely flooded the cave. This is just the mouth of the cave. Further on, completely submerged. And it was so cold and dark and pitch black that no diving light could penetrate the water and even the Thai Navy SEALs could not get through the strong currents to search the caves for the missing team. Several days went by. No one knew what to do until one British expat cave diver who had spent some time exploring this cave said, what you need are these three people who are the best cave divers in the world. Rob Harper, John Volumthen, and Rick Stanton. So the Thai and the British governments, they flew these three middle-aged men over to Thailand. Rob was 66, a veterinarian surgeon. Rick was 57, retired firefighter, like I told you. And John was a 47-year-old IT businessman. Reflecting on the situation, Ben Thompson, honorary British consul, said, no special force in the world has those skills to rescue the boys, only this private group of people who do it as a weekend hobby. The U.S. Navy SEALs were there. The Thai Navy SEALs were there. There were international volunteers there, but nobody 
could go in except for these random esoteric group of people who as a hobby went cave diving. And Rick in his memoir writes about how when they showed up, they look out of shape, they look old, they're wearing t-shirts and there's the U.S. Navy SEALs and the Thai Navy SEALs in the uniforms looking at them with great skepticism like these are the guys who are going to rescue the boys when we couldn't do it. It took over a week and a host of other volunteers, but finally, from July 8 to 10, thanks to Rick and John and a few other cave divers, all volunteers from around the world, were able to rescue all 12, well, all 13 stranded individuals. The, the story is fascinating. Rick reflected on this incredible unfolding of events, and he said, I had spent my life building a very specific and refined set of skills and experiences, all of which led me to that place at that time. In many ways, it seems that I had spent my life preparing to find and then ultimately rescue those boys. See, Rick had an interest in an activity that most of us find terrifying, Diving into utter darkness, crawling through narrow spaces. One of those spaces in the, um, there were nine chambers. The, the, the boys were found in the ninth chamber. There's more, but they were in chamber nine. And it, through one of the ways, it's so narrow that the oxygen tank can't fit through. So you have to like take everything off, push the gear through, and then crawl through in utter pitch darkness. <laughs> and there was one instance where one of the divers on the way back, you know, carried one of the boys. Um, he lost hold of the rope because he was switching hands with the boy, lost the rope, lost his way, and um, completely panicked and almost died. There was actually one Thai Navy SEAL who did die um, trying to rescue the boys, as, trying to take supplies, actually, to the boys as well. So it's, a, it's, a, it's something that most of us would not do for even a million dollars. I see you, Mike. I know you would try. I know you like that kind of stuff. But the rest of us, we don't, <laughs> right? It's claustrophobic. It's terrifying. It's cold. It's everything that I, it's like a nightmare for me. <laughs> and yet, these few individuals, right? and one of them was actually, um, the way they ended up getting the boys out is that they realized that, you know, they found the boys and they're like, hooray, but like, how are they going to get them out? These boys can't swim underwater, let alone dive underwater, and in fact, four adults had become trapped in like one of the earlier chambers. And so Rick and, and um, his partner, John, had to go and rescue those four. And those four adults were only underwater for two minutes. And yet they completely panicked, as you can imagine, and almost drowned the divers. And so they were like, There's, how are we going to rescue these 12 little kids, young as 11 years old, who have been starving for a week. And so they're thin and weak. How are we going to get them out? And Rick had this crazy idea, which was the only way we can get them out is if we sedate them so they're unconscious because it's several hours of underwater. And so if they're just unconscious, we can carry them out. Well, guess what? There were only two cave divers in the world who also happened to be anesthesiologists. One of them was Dr. Um, Richard Harris from South Australia. And so Rick called him and said, can you come here and sedate the boys? And he said, no way. There's no way I can sedate these boys and have them underwater for several hours and not risk, you know, drowning and suffocating and all that. But he said, I'll come and, you know, see what else I can do. 
He came, he saw the situation, realized, yeah, that's the only way. So after multiple conversations and diplomatic sign-offs and, you know, all that, that's what they did. And that's why they got them all out. Because of these random individuals who had this random interest that God gave them, that they pursued, and that ended up doing good, even though most of their lives it hadn't. Being different had enabled Rick and Harry and the others to excel in this hobby that only a minority of people around the world enjoyed, and yet it saved lives. Each of us is unique, and while we might not be hailed as heroes, each of us can do good with our individuality and our influence. If you make a difference in the life of one person, it is enough. Have you read the book, A Man Called Ove? Or watch the American adaptation called A Man Called Otto. Without spoiling the story too much, it's about a grumpy old man who lost his wife and then his job and feels like he has nothing to live for. But a new family moves in across the street and they immediately start asking for help. They, they borrow tools, they need rides, and they're supremely annoying to this grumpy old man. And yet... Being needed, being wanted, changes everything for him. And it's as simple as that. Being someone who makes someone else glad that you exist. Because you care about them. Because to them, you're important. Not because you are Australian of the year. Not because you, you know, have a Nobel Prize. But simply because you matter to them. Because you are the colleague who checks in when someone seems troubled because you are the son who cares for your mother because you are the teacher who speaks kindly to that troubled student because you are the apple of your child's eye you matter because you are uniquely placed and uniquely gifted to be a blessing to someone else someone relates to you and not me and therefore you are God's ambassador to them you may feel different and ordinary or even unfit to be a functioning member of this world, but someone in this world needs and wants you. And you don't want to, you don't have to wait for that to happen, right? Rick, you don't have to wait 57 years to be of good to the world. You can start making those connections. Help someone do one thing. Smile at one person. Be courteous to one stranger. Get to know one person. And repeat. And while it may take a lifetime for someone to truly appreciate you for your individuality, God already sees you as worthy, as beloved, as precious. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 to 31, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Do you know how God is able to number the hairs on our heads? Do you know that when a child is sleeping in your arms, that's when you notice their little dimples, their long eyelashes, you look at their fingernails. The fact that God knows the number of hair strands on your head 
means that's how much he spends looking at you, caring for you, watching over you. You matter to God, and he has a purpose for your life. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 11 to 13. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You matter. You matter to God. You matter to those around you. And you matter to the future generations to come. You matter deeply and uniquely. Others may try to label and define you, but your true value comes from being fearfully and wonderfully made by God. I want to invite you to let go of the burden to be like someone else or to be approved by others. You are already loved and cherished by the one person who actually knows everything. And instead of clinging on and and fearing what others think, I want you to embrace the role that God has entrusted you of cultivating compassion and healing in the world. That your actions, however small, have the power to reflect the divine image of God. And as a result, someone else might believe that they too have value, that they too are precious, that they too are worthy. I pray that this truth will set you free so that you can live out God's purpose for your life. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you have gifted each one of us with quirky, different interests and life experiences and personalities. I pray that we would appreciate and recognize our unique individuality, that we would not be afraid to be a part of the community and to to give and to be a blessing and to do good, to make a difference in someone else's life. Father God, help us to believe the truth, that we are your beloved, that we do matter because you created us and redeemed us and called us. I pray that for those of all of us who struggle every day to live out this truth, that you would help us to believe it more and more and that we would be able to share it with others as well. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.